a wise guy, eh? He sure is. He's fantasy baseball's wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, and we'll talk with him about his research into likely and unlikely save sources, buy lows and sell highs, and much more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Bonds one home run away from history, and he swings, and there's a long one, deep in the right center field, way back there, it's gone, a home run! Into the center field bleachers, to the left of the 421-foot marker, an extraordinary shot to the deepest part of the yard. And Barry Bonds, with 756 home runs, he has hit more home runs than anyone who has ever played the game. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 21st and show number 23 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt. Your host, and in addition to fantasy baseball wise guy Gene McCaffrey, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, which we like to say is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll open with player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with columnist Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly chat with Todd Zola talking about trades and trading. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Rangers third base prospect Joey Gallo. In HQ matchups, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at Irvin Santana pitching against the Atlanta Braves and Trevor Cahill of the Diamondbacks against the Nationals. Finally, in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com co-GM and speculator columnist Ray Murphy talks about June being call-up month, but for how long? It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, you might soon be able to make a fab bit on... Manny Ramirez? What do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, Manny Ramirez is aiming to get back in the big leagues. He's ended his contract in the Taiwan Professional Baseball League and says his plan now is to wait patiently for an offer from a big league team. Manny was Manny in Taiwan, even at 41 years old. He was hitting 352 with 8 home runs and 43 RBIs in 49 games in that league. You'll remember he went to Taiwan after he flunked a second drug test and was released by the Oakland A's. Now, could he really come back to the majors? Probably not. But let's not forget, Manny did hit 312 for his career in the major leagues with 555 home runs and 1,831 RBIs in 19 major league seasons. There might be some teams in Major League Baseball that could use that kind of production in a DH role or even coming off the bench as a pinch hitter. Here at Baseball HQ Radio, we don't need any pinch hitters because we have an all-star lineup again this week, starting in our first inning. In a few minutes, I'll catch up with Todd Zola for our regular weekly chat, talking about trades and trading. But first, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with player news from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League and our old pal, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. This week at BaseballHQ.com, Dan Becker's Batting Buyer's Guide 
column looked at some power overachievers and underachievers, and he did that by comparing players' power indexes to their expected power indexes. One of the underachievers Dan identified was a guy that we have come to associate with pretty good power, but not showing it this year, Brewers third baseman Aramis Ramirez. You know, at this point in the season, Ramirez has got just four home runs, and some of that's due to missed time on the DL uh, with a knee injury. But if you look at XPX, is really an interesting metric because it shows the power index that we expect from a player based upon the kind of contact they're making. It tries to get rid of luck and looks at how hard the contact has been. And Ramirez's XPX looks great. His, his current power index doesn't look so good, 109, but XPX, 155. So here's a guy that, that should bounce back. And the other thing to think about with, uh, with Ramirez is the last four years, he's turned it on in the second half. Really had a great second half surge four years in a row. Now you know I don't know how much you buy into that, but this you gotta you gotta kind of buy into something when a guy does it that consistently. You do indeed. We we say that once you display a skill, you own it. There are some caveats to that, however, Nick. Uh, Aramis Ramirez is no spring chicken. He's, he's, he's well past 30, and he has struggled with knee injuries in the past. And I know that because so much power gets generated from your lower half, that a, an older guy with bad knees, and believe me, I know whereof I speak, uh, is going perhaps going to have a little trouble maintaining that power. Is that a concern? Yeah, it is a concern. Uh, that certainly could be a reason for the low power in the first half. I mean, that was a knee injury that, that had him on the DL. Uh, and certainly may have caused some of that first-half uh, lack of power. Uh, on the other hand, the injury is supposedly healed, and certainly second half could be much better than, than expected. He's a guy that I think I would buy into if I were trying to buy low for the second half. In a facts and flukes column at BaseballHQ.com, Nick, uh, another power-hitting corner infielder, but this one has a much brighter upside. Paul Goldschmidt of Arizona had a terrific year last year, and he's followed right up with another terrific year this year. He has indeed. If you look at all the metrics, it looked like everything Paul Goldschmidt has done this year is very, very real. Currently hitting him 305 with a 291 expected batting average, uh, 16 home runs. His power index is 158. That's that's approaching elite status. So, you know, here's a guy that's uh, that's doing everything right, and all the underlying metrics say that uh, here's a guy who should be doing everything right. So he strikes out maybe a little more than you'd like to see, but given his power. Uh, contact rate of 76% is not bad. Uh, the um, home run per fly rate has been very, very high, 23%. And you might expect that to come down a little bit, but it was 21% uh, in his rookie season two years ago. So so maybe not. So Paul Goldschmidt is a guy that, that looks like he belongs where he is. He's having a great year, and there's nothing really flukish about it. Yeah, well, anytime I see that home run per fly ball rate and, and it looks high, I always think uh, back to when we first started thinking about hit rates and everybody thought that that they standardized for pitchers at 30% and therefore they would standardize for hitters at 30%. And it turned out not to be true that certain hitters like Manny Ramirez, uh, whom I mentioned at the start of the show, is trying to get back into Major League Baseball. Because they hit the ball so hard, they have higher hit rates. And it strikes me that... A combination of a guy's ability to hit the ball hard, to get it in the air, those kind of things. Maybe his home run for fly ball rate, also a favorable park in Paul Goldschmidt's case. Maybe a, a seemingly elevated home run for fly ball rate is not, in fact, elevated because he's good for it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, here's a guy who's, whose home run for fly rate is influenced certainly by the home park that he's in, as well as by the fact that he hits the ball very, very hard. So probably should be should be higher than we would expect uh, for somebody playing, uh, for example, in San Diego.
Steve Nickrand, our starting pitching buyer's guide column, had a really interesting column this week looking at one split away, which is an interesting concept. He looks at a whole bunch of pitchers, all the pitchers, in fact, that are starting in the big leagues, and he compares them in certain split situations, runners on, no runners on, runners in scoring position, not in scoring position, time through the order, and these kind of things. And uh, one of the pitchers he identified as a subject of interest was also in Arizona, Ian Kennedy. Ian Kennedy is uh, is really struggling this year. I mean, here's a guy with a with a 5.49 ERA at this point in the season, a guy that we look at as a fairly uh, elite kind of pitcher. And in fact, if you look at his overall results, his his basic uh, skills are not bad. 7.8 DOM, 3.1 control, uh, 69 BPV should have a 4.16 xERA, or has a 4.16 xERA. So that 5.21 ERA that he's currently got, uh, you know, that's uh a little bit higher, a lot higher than we would expect. And what Stephen Nickran looked at was that Ian Kennedy is struggling with guys on base. With uh, with the bases empty, 9.29 dom, 2.5 control. So striking out a bunch of guys, showing very, very good control with the bases empty. When he gets guys on base, 5.5 dom, 4.1 control. So some real a real difference in the base skills that Ian Kennedy is showing with guys on base. Um He's a veteran pitcher. He should be able to adjust that. Uh, certainly would expect Ian Kennedy to do very much better in the second half. We're projecting a uh, 3.9 ERA for the second half as opposed to his current 5.21 ERA. I wonder about the fact that there are guys on base almost uh, about 90% of the time or so means the pitcher is pitching from the stretch. And I wonder if pitching from the stretch is maybe a, an actual weakness for a pitcher like Ian Kennedy and maybe not so easily overcome. That would be my concern. Well, it, it certainly would be, and I certainly would, would agree with you with a younger pitcher, but we've got a guy in Ian Kennedy's case who who has, has shown in the past the ability to pitch from the stretch, certainly. Um, and so he, he's really having a problem this year with strand rate. Last 31 days, 57% strand rate. That's I mean, that's just awful, and a lot of bad luck certainly involved. So... Uh, yeah, certainly pitching the stretch is, is uh, a skill, but Ian Kennedy has shown in the past he's been able to do that, so I, that would give me some hope that he might be able to turn things around. Nick, I looked at Ian Kennedy's career splits with bases empty and men on, and it's quite unusual because there's one skill that jumps out from the rest. His strikeout percentage is about 22% of plate appearances, bases empty versus 19 men on. That's fairly close. Uh, 3% home run percentage based on plate appearances. That's exactly the same both ways. But listen to this. With bases empty, his walk rate is 5% of plate appearances. With men on, it's 11%. And that drops his command from 4.0 strikeouts for every walk for his career with bases empty to 1.8 with men on this may be a real problem for ian kennedy well maybe it is i that, i agree with you for if that kind of a if those same things play out in terms of his his career mark uh which they seem to yeah i agree that there's uh, seems to be a real problem here and i would have less hope of his uh turning things around than i would with a younger pitcher in this case yeah it's a, it's an interesting story the skills are much worse, 
but the results are exactly the same career-wise. His batting average against is 245 either way. On-base percentage is slightly higher with men on. Slugging percentage is virtually identical. It's a very unusual stat line with men on for his career. This is going to be an interesting thing to watch uh, with Ian Kennedy. Uh, finally, Steve Nickrand also identified another pitcher that he thought was uh, one split away, and that was the Cubs starter Edwin Jackson. And we got the same kind of thing that's going on with Ian Kennedy, a very ugly current ERA, 5.40, uh, and a bad whip, a 1.55 whip. But the skills overall are very good. And, again, you've got more Dom, 2.1 control, uh, whereas when he gets guys on base, 8.4 Dom, and the control goes to 5.4, having trouble finding the plate once he gets guys on base. So, if there, again, uh, what Stephen suggests is that if the uh, – if he can get a little bit of a tweak and getting better control with men on base, there's a chance that he'll respond much, much better in terms of his overall ERA. And we're projecting a 4.03 ERA for the rest of the way. Edwin Jackson's one of those guys, isn't he, Nick? Every year you think, this is the year he's going to do it. Oftentimes I've gambled on Edwin Jackson in the past, and usually I've been sorry I did it and finally learned my lesson. I don't really want to have anything to do with Edwin Jackson at this point just because, you know, four times bitten, fifth time shy. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Edwin Jackson is not a guy that I expect ever to have the great breakout year. But if you look back over his ERAs for the last uh, – the last few seasons, 4.42, 3.82, 4.47, 3.79, 4.03—a very reliable kind of uh, kind of guy. So uh, my guess is that that current 4.5.49 ERA is going to come down. He hasn't shown us anything this bad since 2007, uh, and he's been so reliable and consistent over the past few seasons. Uh, my guess is he certainly will get better. Yeah, the question is, how much do you want to bet on it? Uh, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn it over to the American League. And here's BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. How you doing this week? Well, we're in decorating mode, uh, part of the renovation, so it's fairly hectic around here. It's also a fairly hectic part of the baseball season, the part where we're starting to see the call-ups from the minor leagues, and one of the most highly anticipated call-ups has happened. Will Myers has been called up by the Tampa Bay Rays. The news was covered at BaseballHQ.com by Jeremy Deloney in our daily call-ups report and by Matt Dodge in the Playing Time Today coverage. Um, what do you think is the skinny on Myers for a fantasy baseball team? Well, Myers' early numbers are pretty telling. He's hit 41 home runs in his last 770 at-bats between uh, AAA and AA. And he's also drawn 90 walks and whiffed 210 times. Now, I think the consensus between both uh, Matt and Jeremy and myself uh, is that we expect him to hit for decent average eventually, just not early on. I, th- I think what we're going to see is some power from Myers. And the good news for Myers owners are that now that uh, uh, Super 2 is, is probably here, he's up to stay with Tampa Bay, and he's likely to play a lot. He's, he's going to take some at-bats from Luke Scott. Uh, ben Zobris is probably going to move from his utility role to become the most-of-the-time second baseman and won't get as many outfield at-bats anymore. Another interesting recall in the American League from the minor leagues is Lonnie Chisenhall. Uh, noted by Tom Kephart on Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. Chisholm of course, was a highly regarded prospect in his own right, and he began the season this year starting at third for Cleveland. He got sent down after a really slow start. Now he's back. Uh, how do you like his chances to stick, and how do you like his chances to be useful if he does? 
Well, it's interesting. Chisenhall got called up because he was really mashing in the minors. He he was hitting 390 with six home runs and 105 at bat since he got sent down. Um, I probably like him a little better than uh, than Kep does, but uh, I will agree with one thing. The thing that's killing Chisenhall is that uh, 0.14 batting eye and his and his patience. Uh, it's just not there. If, if you see Chisenhall play in person, he's always been a scouting favorite. He's got a very quick bat. He can hit for power. The problem is, is that he just doesn't have a clue at what he's swinging at. I, I had a chance to watch him last night, uh, or I'm sorry, Thursday night, or Wednesday night versus Kansas City, and he worked a 2-0 and count with the bases loaded, and then he went after a pitch out of the zone and grounded out weakly. Um, he could stick around if he, deci- if he decides to get a little more patient. He's up primarily because Nick Swisher took a, uh, a, a cortisone shot in his ailing left shoulder, and he's basically subbing at third base with Mark Reynolds moving over to, to first base. But it's really up to Chisenhall whether he sticks or not. Um, if he ever learns patience, he could be pretty good. On the other hand, if he never does, and he's had a fair amount of time to, to learn it at AAA in the major leagues by now, and it still doesn't seem to be working. And the problem is I think you made a really interesting point about him grounding out with the bases loaded. A lot of people criticize metrics like batting eye, which is a ratio of, stri- of walks to strikeouts for a batter, and they say, you know, it doesn't matter because, you know, how many walks, how many strikeouts, it's all part of the game. And that's true, but if you get a guy who strikes out a lot and is not selective, the kind of outs they make often cost them RBIs, that cost them opportunities to be productive, and in the long run, maybe even cost them playing time when the manager realizes this guy just won't wait for a strike to, to swing at. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you have a quick bat. If, if you're not swinging at pitches, you can hit. Tom Kephart also reported on another situation in Cleveland. Uh, Brian Rudd of BaseballHQ.com also covered it in his Divisional Outlook coverage. Chris Perez is back from the DL with his shoulder injury, and he could be eased back into the closer role, which is somewhat surprising considering a really good performance in the role by Vinny Pestano while Perez was out. So, Jock, do you think Perez gets the job back, or do the Indians stick with Pestano? Rarely in baseball does the incumbent lose a job due to a short-term injury. And let's face it, uh, Perez is, is well down the salary line and service years uh, uh, grade to the point where I think Cleveland will probably want to move him sometime. Bullpen is a strength for Cleveland, uh, but they're going to try to. I think they're going to try to ease him back into the closer role. Uh, skills-wise, rotator cuff issues, uh, which is what uh, Perez had, are nothing to sneeze at. And if you look at his numbers uh, in in uh, May, he'd, he'd gone downhill since a, a good April start. He'd uh, he he walked eight and in nine innings. He was giving up home runs. Um, I would rather probably have Pistano over Perez because I'm not convinced uh, Perez is going to come back from this injury. On the other hand, uh, Pistano's skills haven't been haven't been really terrific this year. He's benefited benefited from a little luck. That's a strong Cleveland pen. Longer term, I think I'd rather have Joe Smith or Cody Allen. Yeah, Allen's got that tremendous strikeout uh, rate that really makes him attractive in the long term. I like the idea that Perez gets the job back and hopefully that maybe Pistano and some of these other guys fall out of favor and maybe you can acquire them in trade or from your free agent lists in many leagues because I don't think Perez is the answer short term. I agree with you. I think if he does well that he immediately becomes the kind of guy that Cleveland would love to trade because as Billy Bean has proved, closers are made, not born. And and if you just give the guy the role, let him succeed in the short term, then flip him for something at all useful – 
Certainly Cleveland has lots of options. And don't forget, Perez is facing some legal problems as well. I don't think they're going to amount to much. He and his wife were uh, released on their own recognizance after being charged with marijuana possession. And, Jock, I don't know if you heard the details on this, but they arranged to have some pot mailed to their house, but they didn't address it to themselves. They addressed it to their dog. The dog's I name- did hear that. <laughs> Talk about a couple of criminal masterminds here. The police will never figure this out. I guess you have to admire, though, they didn't let the dog uh, take the fall. Yeah, yeah, that that can't endear them too much to uh, to Cleveland or or the dog, for that matter. Does, does the dog seem to really like Doritos? I'm just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> In his facts and flukes column, Jock, Matt Cederholm at BaseballHQ.com looked at John Lester. He got off to a really solid start. Everybody was really excited. He was 4-0. With a 311 ERA, 114 whip in the early part of the season through April. But since that time, he's faded pretty badly. He's 0 3 in his last five starts, a 714 ERA, and a whip right around two. Who do you think is the real John Lester? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, basically, if you look at Lester's aggregate numbers for the year, he's he's right back close to where he ended up in 2012 skills-wise. His expected ERA was uh, 3.92 last year. It's 3.80 now. He's had just a little better luck this season as the 4.37 ERA uh, this year versus 4.82 in 2012 shows. And the other numbers are similar as well. He's got a 2.4 command. His home run home runs per nine is, is right at 1.0. Um, I think the aggregate stats are pointing to the real John Lester. He's, he's stable. He's useful. Um, he's just not elite like he was in 2009 through 2011. This is a situation, Jock, I really like as a rotisserie player when I'm looking at other guys' rosters, especially when stories like this start filtering their way into the baseball media. A lot of stories out there. John Lester's last five starts have been terrible, you know, these high ERA and whip rates. His last five starts have looked bad. I'm not going to deny that taken together. But two of them were PQS4s, which is a a four out of five on a scale of pure quality starts, baseballhq.com metric that really does capture how well a pitcher is pitching. The picture of these last five starts has been blurred by a really horrendous start at Tampa. He gave up seven runs, I think 15 base runners, something like that, three home runs in less than five innings. If you take that start out, even the aggregate numbers you mentioned – are way better than they would be without that one lousy start. I think this guy's a prime target to get off of a disgruntled owner. No, I agree. If 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 an owner, if the disgruntled owner is looking at the last five games and the aggregate starts, uh, then uh, yeah, you can definitely pick his pocket. Uh, you know, again, my take is it's it's probably more similar to yours than not. Is that uh, Lester's still a very useful guy? I just don't think he's the pitcher he was when he first broke in. And you could be right about that. And finally, Jock, back to the American League Central. Brian Rudd's divisional outlook column looked at the Annabelle Sanchez injury and what that means for the Tiger rotation. It looks like Jose Alvarez is going to come up again from the minors to, to make a couple of starts. And, and the Tigers don't think that, uh, that Sanchez will be out all that long. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Jock, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, see you then. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, covers the American League West in his Divisional Outlook columns, and writes other things as well. Now it's time to talk to Todd Zola, as we do every week. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back with you, Patrick. 
You know, we're starting to enter that time of year when uh, Roto and other fantasy owners are starting to look at the possibility of making trades. And just recently at KFFL.com, you did a really interesting three-part series with your Knights of the Roundtable, a bunch of experts that you get together regularly, and you challenged them to make some trades with a league that you made up for the purpose. Uh, First of all, where did you get the idea? When you do these roundtables, you sort of have to be creative. And it just sort of came to me. Let's try something, you know, just sort of, I don't remember exactly what the word, you know, what the stimulus was, but he said, hey, I have an idea. And uh, I, so I sent him an email out before we did it and he said, guys, uh, I may ask a little bit more of you this time, anybody who wants to do it. But the good news is if we do it right, you're off for the next couple of weeks. And we got some very enthusiastic responses and we had uh, seven other people participate and we set up a league. I made, randomly went through the stats, randomly set it up and, and, we had eight people. It was a 12-team league. I left the first and second place team and the last two place, the last place teams, out of it, and we just randomly assigned teams in the middle and tasked the boys with uh, making a deal. And uh, deal they did. Uh, the first one involved a couple of guys who work together. They share office space. They're friends of uh, of one another. And you said in your analysis of that deal that it's really an advantage, especially in home leagues, to be able to have that kind of familiarity. Yeah, I think so, and you know, you always get the when you trade, especially if you if you join a league and it's an established league. There's always going to be some people in there that have a certain comfort level with each other, and it's you know difficult sometimes to break into that inner circle. Uh, even you know, a lot of home leagues now are inviting out of towners in it just to make sure they get twelve or ten or whatever the number might be. But yeah, there's you have to sort of anticipate that certain pairs of people, for whatever reason, might have more of a reason to deal with each other, and you need to you know, preempt that. If, it, if, if you want to get a guy from that guy's team, you've got to realize that his office mate or his roommate or, you know, heck, his, his, his son may be after the same player, and you have to work extra hard to make sure that you're in on the discussions. Some of the other trades, of course, involve people who don't know each other that well, maybe see each other once a year at industry things like first pitch or one of the the experts' drafts, but for the most part, they're not familiar with each other. And you complimented quite a few of them for breaking the ice with their initial offer rather than just charging ahead. Yeah, now this, we, you know, we, I think there's a mutual respect that I think we would all have for each other. But, you know, like I said, some of these people, you know, just know each other by the, by the cover photo and the bio. And, uh, even in the even in the trade discussions that I get into with people I know, just sort of you don't want to just kind of jump right in and, and make an offer. It's it's dry, it seems so bus- business like, professional that sort of thing. I think y- if you open up conversation in general, you never know what you find out. So I you know I thought thought it was kind of neat how some of these guys, uh, the icebreakers may have been been a joke or. Uh, one of them to me seemed like an inside joke from one to the other that I had no clue about myself, but obviously it it, it, it evoked a, an emotion in the other guy. And then one of the guys went, and then Nick Nick Minix went and 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 just started talking like a, a, an old English fellow. And and Greg Morgan, uh, who they never met, came back and and didn't you know didn't go what the heck's this guy doing? He came back and started answering in the same you know silly little English accent written down on paper. So they got a deal done, uh, you know, and in the, in the atmosphere was pretty light. There were a couple others, though, that, you know, I, I want to deal him, what do you want? And I found those negotiations were more of the ticky-tack back and forth, each trying to 
you know, outdo each other by that increment that I win the deal sort of thing. And maybe it's just coincidence because we only, you know, eight or so deals. But I found the negotiation environment a little bit different in the ones where there really wasn't an icebreaker versus the ones where there were. Sounds like just a matter of general friendliness. What about the idea that familiarity breeds contempt? I've been in a, a very long-standing league. I joined it in the early 90s, I think, or maybe even the late 80s. So it's been around a very long time, and some of the guys in it have been in it the entire time. And, and uh, sometimes it gets to the point where you know a guy well enough that you don't like him, and you, you don't want to deal with him, but sometimes you have to. How do you bridge that? Uh, hmm, Interesting. Um, I, I never want to cut off an asset if, you know, you know, we're supposed to be having fun and all that sort of stuff, you know, but in some of these leagues, you, you know, you may pay for a couple of jelly beans or, or bragging rights. So it's, it's pretty serious. You never want to cut off an asset. I, I've never actually played in a league where I didn't like the person that I didn't kick out before I had a chance to trade with them. So my, you know, but, um, I'm not sure. I think I would try to keep it. I don't know that I would use the same friendly tactics and, you know, let them know that, you know, went to, hey, went to the gym today, you know, whatever, that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I, I, I keep it professional and, and, and not do my best not to uh, not to be condescending and any of that sort of stuff. But an asset's an asset, whether you like it or not. Uh, you may not like, you know, the, the, the owner of a store where you need to buy something from, but you need to buy it. You need to go to that store. Uh, it's a pretty silly analogy. <laughs> but a good um, analogy. Even, you know, when someone sends you an insulting offer, it's the same sort of idea. Don't get insulted. It's it's still an asset to deal with this person. F- figure out a way to turn it around back at him or them. You mentioned in one of your analyses that one of the traders involved had mentioned a specific offer on the same player that he'd had from another owner, and he named the other owner as well. And I'm wondering whether you think that's that's an okay thing to do in a trade negotiation. This is one of those, you know, playing both sides of the fence answers. I think it's okay to do it, but I don't do it. Uh, I think that there are people out there. Well, I know there are people out there that believe, you know, what what happens in my inbox stays in my inbox. It was a private discussion between you and me, unless I explicitly said, "Hey, it's okay," you know, if you let everybody know my offer. You know, it was it was a it was a private offer. Um, I I kind of assume the person feels that way and won't divulge offers. Uh, others, that's just part of their ploy because they they want the offer to be bettered, and in order for it to be bettered, you need to know what you're dealing with. I'll drop hints, and if if I need to, I'll ask permission, or I'll subtly give an idea of what it is that I'm that I need for it to be beaten. But I, especially, I mean, as commissioner of a few leagues, you probably see the same thing. It's funny. I got the you know I get these emails. From for the nights to do this exercise, but I'll often get an entire negotiation sent to me as a commissioner in, you know, as a matter of confirming, confirming the trade. Actually, that may have been part of the stimulus of doing this. Now that I think about it, some of those subliminal things, I think I probably got one of those responses back from a league that I, that I, uh, that I commissioned and, and said, Hey, this, you know, I think I bet you that's how it started. One of those things you don't even know it's in your, the back of your mind, but it is, but sure. Uh, I don't do it, but I can see other people doing it, that is, giving the names. For my two cents, I think there's a presumption of privacy that you should treat every 
email that you get on the on these subjects as confidential unless you have overt permission from the person who made the offer to say so. And I found that uh, sometimes it can be a good idea in leagues where you suspect that might be happening or the, or that you know that that's happening is put it right in your email every time, like a disclaimer right at the front. Please, I consider this conversation private. Please do not report or repeat any of the following to any other team in the league. They still might do it, but at least they know they can't come back to you and say, oh, I thought you thought it was all right. Yeah, I, I said this yeah, in, in the analysis. I said the exact same thing. It's just I don't get – if someone does it to me, I I don't know. I don't get mad and, and therefore cut off negotiations. It's, I understand that it does – I think it's a generational thing as well. I think it might be anyway. Sort of uh, having to do with this whole uh, privacy issue that's going on in the real world with – um, the young people have much less expectation of privacy because they live their whole lives online. Very well could be. I didn't think of it that way. But, yeah, no, that, that very well could be part of it in that everything is such an open book nowadays that there isn't an expectation. Sure, that could be very well could be part of it. You mentioned a couple of times that you liked situations where the traders offered choices back and forth so that it, uh, it was like uh, one from column A, two from column B in both directions often. Yeah, this uh, this is probably my favorite ploy, and um, whether or not these guys are doing it because they think it's a ploy as well or whatever. Trading a lot of times is about control, or or at least a perception of control. You wanna you wanna be the one that tables the offer that's accepted, uh, as opposed to accepting it. It just there's something about that that makes you think that you got the better end of the deal. So my favorite way of sort of doing that, or having the other person do that is giving them choices. Now, the key to the whole thing is I'm the one that's deciding in advance, you know, the list they get to choose from. So even though you're choosing the actual players, in my mind, I've already sort of made peace with the fact that you can choose any of these and I'll like the deal. So in essence, I'm actually, you know, in charge as well because you're choosing from my, my list. Now, some people may come back and replace players on the list and that's fine. But in general, I found that the other thing about it is, too, you know, in your mind, you always, you know, there's always, I hope he takes this guy and I hope he takes that guy. You'd be shocked at how many times they actually do, that they value the players a little differently and they take the guys that you actually value less. Whereas if you had offered the guys that you happen to value more because you value more and you think that they'll accept it, uh, you would never even known that you could have gotten that deal. So the key is 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 offering a a, a a range of players within the you know grasp of what you'll actually accept, so that they can go in a couple different directions. I find it works. It, it keeps negotiations going, and I think it's a pretty decent ploy as long as the players are in your roster that you can do it with. Sometimes there aren't. Oddly enough, considering how much of the communication, not just in fantasy baseball but generally, takes place by email. You commented that a mass email to start a trade negotiations with a general offer, hey, everybody, I'm offering Jay Bruce, might not be as useful or effective as we once thought and maybe not, might not even be a good idea. Why do, why do you think that? Um, mainly because it was a small sample, I guess. Not everybody did. I thought it was the way that it was done. I just thought that that's the way most trade negotiations went. But... And actually began thinking about it in my own leagues, how many deals were there, was there a cattle call, and how many would just announce, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know. Um, I think perhaps in leagues where there's some sort of 
voting mechanism. I think you may find more cattle calls announced because it's sort of a way to to say, well, no one else made me an offer. You have that built-in back back excuse there. I don't know. Um, the other, it's sort of involved in all. Maybe this is coming up in a minute, but involved in all this was the timing of the cattle call, whereas the ones that came out earlier in the week seemed to get less attention than the ones that were closer to the deadline. Now, we had a publishing deadline. Leagues will have a, a, a transaction deadline. And right. just, like, just like when you're writing your term paper back in high school, you do your best work under the gun. And we had, you know, obviously trades submitted to me within a day or two, an hour or two of the deadline. Uh, and I'm not so sure that, that that's not what happens in real leagues. That if I, you know, if I'm, if my transaction's Monday and I get an email Wednesday that so-and-so's putting, I don't know, Troy Tulowitzki on the block or something, I may just say, right, I got till Monday and I may not respond right away if I got stuff going on, if I'm working or, or whatever. Uh, I, I wonder if that's the same way, you know, if, if, if that's the true in, in other, you know, in leagues that you should put out the cattle call closer to the weekend, uh, or the transaction deadline. Uh, know thy own league is a pretty much a commandment of trading, but I, I know that Ron Chandler, when he's written about trading in the past, is an advocate of not really sending out these cattle call emails because he says your first offer to your to your potential trading partner or partners should be along the lines of here's how I can help you specifically address a need. Yeah, now my cattle. I try to make a point of if I'm my general rule of thumb is if I'm the one initiating conversation. I will make the first offer. I'll do the work to begin with. I'm not going to say, I have so-and-so on the block, make me an offer, I'll accept the best offer. I think that's lazy, I think that's arrogant, and it, you know, it turns me off. Now, if I'm on the other end of that and I really want the player, I mean, I'll make an offer. But but I, I, I sort of res- turn it around out of respect. If I So what I'll do is I'll solicit interest, and then if I have someone that comes back and say, okay, I'll bite what it'll take, then I'll do what Ron suggests and say, all right, here's the deal. Looking at our rosters, I think this is a match, and I think this is why. Um, that sort of thing. I don't, but especially we talked about, you talked about the sort of the keeper leagues. If there's, if I'm rebuilding and there's one prospect I really want, or if I'm going for it and there's one non, you know, help for this year guy that I really want, I'll keep those conversations covert because I, I, sometimes I feel, well, the other person, it's their due diligence to put the person on the block or see if they can beat the offer. But sometimes they don't. You know, if they're especially if they're dumping, they just want to get it over with. They just want to, you know, trade away their 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 non keepers, get a couple prospects, and move on. So sometimes you can sneak in, you know, under the radar, and and make a make a reasonable offer. And you know, they just they're done with it. You know, it's a bad year for them. They don't want to deal with it anymore, and you're done. Where you know their cattle call could hurt you because other people could. Could could come in and and and, and possibly make them offers. Uh, somewhat situational. Know thy league. Um, goes you know anytime you're dealing with a human thing, it, it goes both ways. It's just a, a mind reading effort sometimes. Your own deal started with an offer to deal Jay Bruce or Will Myers, and was a cattle call email. And then what ensued was quite a lengthy and complex multi-party negotiation. You ended up trading Jay Bruce, uh, Will Myers, and Casey Jansen, who hadn't even been mentioned in the first place, for Andy Dirks, Jacoby Ellsbury, and B.J. Upton. And you followed up in your own analysis saying you think you might have messed up on that one. Uh, <laughs> I have to say I agree with you. I think you messed up on it too. But how? Do, without going into all the nuts and bolts of what went on, what went on? 
Jay Bruce is is a guy that that I am. He's going to be my nemesis all year long. I came out in May and said he's going to have a terrible year, and he's doing very well. And I'm also a guy that says prospects, you know, temper expectations. So the the assignment of rosters may not have been completely random. I, I may have made it so I have Jay Bruce and Will Myers on mine so I could deal them and talk, you know, talk about how terrible they are again. Problem is, my team was one where I was in the lower end of the standings, and those are the kind of players you need to, uh, whether you like them or not, you know, whether or not you believe a certain player is going to turn it around. Sometimes you just have to hope that he does in order to compete. Uh, so the, the, I should not have been trying to trade those guys. I should have been trying to trade for more guys like that. So that was, I was kind of, you know, I don't want to say defeats the ex- purpose of the exercise necessarily, um, but it was, I, I did kind of approach it from the wrong angle. And then what I tried to do with my buddy Lar, you know, low thy league, uh, Lar's a difficult nut to crack sometimes. You know, sometimes you, he's, he's in a real hurry, he's real busy, he's got all this stuff to do, and I, this is part of knowing him. So sometimes you, you try to, you know, do all the work for him. Other, t- you know, but he knows baseball inside and out, and it's like, why are you telling me this? I know this and already, so it was, it was kind of difficult. I kind of, I try to, you know, do the trade for him as a, as opposed to working with him. And Lars, a, a great guy, so he didn't get upset. But that could make some other people upset. You know, it's like, duh, you know, duh, I'm, I'm, I know, I know that this guy's hot or or you know is playing well lately or is injured or whatever. You don't need to tell me that. What do you think? You know, I've been doing this for 15 years. I know what I'm doing. So that know thy league and know thy competition is is even more so. You know how in depth do you explain to them that if you get five more steals and give away homers, you won't lose any points? You ended the three part exercise by asking the participants whether they found trading was easier, harder, or about the same because of the uh, the huge experimental problem. Of course, is these guys were just handed these teams. They had no real attachment to them. They didn't have much of a chance to understand how their teams had been moving in the standings and so forth. What did they say? Sort of mixed mixed opinions. Some people were just, you know, it's, it's a trade, it's a trade, it's a trade. I need stats, I have standings, I need to, you know, close this gap, and I can give away stats from this gap, and it was just, you know, a mathematical exercise. Others, and I, I fell into this class, but I found it to be more difficult in the in, in that, I was not in tune with my team. I didn't have that intuitive grasp of my team, of the league, of who just made a trade, therefore the standings are going to move in that direction, that sort of thing. And I found that to be a little bit more difficult. The other hand, you know, I had no reservation. I would deal anybody. Whereas in a real league, for what, you know, if perhaps it's a guy that you talked about and you want him, you know, you put your neck out for him in, a, in an article or in a, on a podcast. So, again, there should be no attachment, but there was an emotional attachment to some of the guys. Uh, and a couple of the nights, actually, and, and I felt the same way, learned from it, and the, those that had the emotional attachment think that they probably should, you know, loosen the reins a bit. They are just trading stats. 
Or, uh, of course, most people who are listening to this show and most people who play the game are not writing about it or, or putting their names out there publicly saying Jay Bruce is going to be good or bad or whatever. But in many, many instances, they are guys, you're asking a guy to give up on a guy he drafted. And in many leagues, of course, you're talking about asking guys to give up players they drafted as farm players and have seen low, you know four or five years' worth of development before they hit their roster and started contributing. And then you come along and you say, I want want that guy from you it's it's you're right it's the player that you're asking for may have something more going on than just the numbers that he's putting on the piece of paper i mean it's real quick but there are players that have either helped me to a championship or i've traded away and and when when they do well i almost oh good oh wait a minute he's not on my team anymore so they're, they're still even when they're gone there's still something in the back of your mind there we're humans and so are they you know Sometimes yeah. we forget that. But, yeah, you're right. Um, there, There's a lot to that. I remember in this uh, home league that I'm talking about, the most successful player in the league's history was something of a mentor to me in my early uh, participation. I didn't understand the game as well as some of the guys in the league. I was new to it. And he said, I'll tell you one thing, and you got to remember it for as long as you play this game. They're just meat. Yeah, well, I, t- I wrote that in Google uh, statistics generation pieces of meat. I, I think I wrote it in 2002 on SI.com and have seen it in various forms since then, but uh, that's all they are. Still, it's hard to separate yourself from them sometimes, and that's part of the fun of it. Todd, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. I'll be here. Good to talk to you, Patrick. Todd Zola of MastersBall.com, ESPN, and BaseballHQ.com sometimes as well. Our feature interview with the wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, is next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Now Davis standing in second. A full count to Gibson. Three balls and two strikes and the crowd on their feet. And Gibson calls time and backs out. So the battle of minds starts to work a little bit. Gibson a deep side. Regripping the bat. Shoulders just shrugged. Goes to the top of the helmet as he always does. Steps in with that left foot. Eckersley working out of the stretch. Here's the 3 2 pitch and a drive hit to right field. Way back! He's gone! He's And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's a pleasure now to be joined by the baseball wise guy, Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball, one of our favorite guests here at Baseball HQ Radio. Gene, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to be here. I always like to start by catching up with how our guests are doing in their leagues. I know you play the CDM salary cap game, and I know you were, I believe, the first ever Tout Wars mixed straight draft. How are you doing this year in your leagues? Sort of mediocre, um, but not that far from uh, probably one hot streak away from getting where I need to be. A little better in the Tout Wars League. Um, had a few setbacks, a few injuries, but I guess everybody else has too. But uh, but as I say, I'm one good hot streak away from uh, from being where I think I belong. Ha-ha. But it's a long season, Patrick. We're not even halfway there yet, so don't give up hope, please. 
Oh, never give up. It's always fun to keep trying. And Gene, you said it that your blog site a couple of uh, days ago that your favorite player in all of baseball is Andrew McCutcheon. Why? Well, first of all, because he can do everything that it's possible to do to beat you on a baseball field. Uh, he's really fast. He's got power. He's got speed. He makes contact. He plays defense. He's got a good arm. Uh, I also like him because he's right in the game at all times. If there's an edge to be had, he's going to take it from you. And I, I just love to see that in the players. It's not so much from a fantasy standpoint, although, you know, of course, he's a really good fantasy player, too. Um, but even for fantasy players, it, it's nice to know when you own a player that he's not giving anything away. There's enough bad luck as it is. And so a guy who's right there to take advantage of any good luck that, that might happen to come his way. Not crazy about his hair, but, you know, hey, it's not my hair, so. The thing I like about guys like McCutcheon also is that because he's so good at all aspects of the game, they're really valuable in that way that they never really have a week where nothing happens. Just so. And, and the other thing about him is, is that he plays. I mean, I'm sure he's been playing there hurt, but he, he doesn't miss ball games. He's out there every day. Um, and as you say, he's, he steals some bases. I think he's got some home runs coming to him because this year his, uh, his line drive rate is excellent and he's hitting a few more fly balls. So far the home runs haven't come, but I would expect him to hit, you know, probably. He's probably going to hit 18 to 20 from now on, and that's something nice to look forward to. I remember seeing him, I'm sure you do too, uh, five or six years ago in the Arizona Fall League at first pitch Arizona, and he hit a double that he easily legged into a triple, and and he had fine defensive instincts as well out there. You could just tell this guy was going places. Yeah, he really wants to play, and that's uh, you can't put a price on that. And it's, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to call it an intangible, but it's not really intangible because the, the numbers that he puts up are very tangible. At your blog, you also did an analysis using what's called the Pythagorean process to calculate or infer the best closer bets for the rest of the season. First of all, how did you do this? Well, I'm sure that um, the listeners are familiar with the Bill James Pythagorean method for win expectation, which is runs scored squared divided by runs scored squared plus runs allowed squared. Um, That will give you an expected winning percentage. So what I do is... I go through all the teams and I look at where they are, what their winning percentage is, and what their winning percentage should be. And then I take that, and there's two there's two things you can do with that after you've done it. The first thing to do is to uh, multiply the win expected expected winning percentage by the number of games they have to play to give you an expected wins for the future, which actually makes a difference because at this time of year, there's usually some teams that have played three or four fewer games than other teams, and when you're looking for saves, you obviously you, you can't get a save unless there's a game. So that's one way to do it. And the other way to do it is to look at the win expectation and then compare it to, look, these teams are underachieving, therefore they're going to get a luck bounce back. Um, who among their closers are, are good trade targets or in the CDM games, just guys that you can buy. And, and I use both of those methods. And who came out as the best bets of closers we might be thinking about targeting in the games to come? Both methods, um, the team that that we really want to pay attention to is the Tigers. Now, of course, they don't have a very good closer, but I think there's a really good chance that they're going to go out and get one. Um, so that's something to pay a lot of attention to. Um, other guys, if you can target in a trade, uh, Joe Nathan is a good guy to target. Uh, Greg Holland on Kansas City, there's a, there's a team that's underachieving. 
he's a pitcher who underachieved a little bit. He had a slow start two years in a row. He's pitching well now. He's a guy I would make a point to target if I were looking to um, to pick up some saves. In Detroit, you don't think that there's any chance that they're going to, uh, even if they give up on Valverde, that they're going to uh, go with somebody who's already on the roster? Drew Smiley, perhaps. Uh, of course, Benoit has been there for a while. It is possible. Um, I think Benoit would be the most likely uh, candidate. But I remember Leland saying earlier in the spring that he didn't like using uh, Benoit even on back-to-back days, which is going to be a problem. I mean, maybe he's changed his mind, but if, if that's his intent, um, he's going to have a problem using him as the closer. Also, I think that um, Detroit, the team, is, you know, they're a very good team, and they're one closer away from, I think they want to win the World Series this year, and I'd be surprised if they didn't go out and get somebody, a Papelbon or something like that. Who, did anybody come out as a bad bet using this method? Absolutely. That's that's another thing you can do. Now, this doesn't help in the CDM games, but it does help for people who are in, five-by-five you know, five leagues where they can make trades. Because just as there are underachieving teams, there are overachieving teams. Um, and those teams, believe it or not, are the Phillies, the Nationals, which really shocked me, the Pirates, the White Sox, and the Yankees. So, for example, what you might do if you're in a trading league and you happen to have Mariano Rivera is offer Rivera as part uh, of the trades and try to get, say, Greg Holland for him back. So what that'll do is you, know, you could say, hey, I'll trade you Mariano Rivera and Lance Berkman, and you trade me, Greg Holland, and Prince Fielder, and therefore you win on both ends. Um, I don't know if you could do it. Things like that can be done in leagues. You win both ends of a trade. I think that's the way to go. Also on your site, Gene, you recently had a post about the historically bad season the Marlins are having, along with a couple of other potentially very bad teams, including the White Sox, I think, who you just said, believe it or not, are overperforming despite their dreadful record. How does being on a really bad team affect a player's fantasy potential, do you think, if at all? And how should owners respond to having players on these historically bad clubs? This year, I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room because... There's so many injuries that you're basically stuck with what you've got. Um, when it comes to fabbing, say, sub-mediocre players, yeah, it does make a difference. The worse the team, the less you want them. Sometimes you don't have a choice. You're just looking for some regular at-bats. But if you do have a choice, um, realize that for a hitter, his production is going to be down um, no matter what he does. Now, I don't think protection in the lineup has anything to do with batting average or home runs, but it does have something to do with how you know how many runs you'll score and how many runs you'll drive in. Same thing with the pitchers. Uh, you know, you're gonna you're dealing. He's gonna have a low strand rate because his bullpen stinks. Um, his defense is bad. He's gonna give up extra hits, and uh, you know, you give up an extra hit, all of a sudden you're throwing 25, 26 pitches in an inning. You give up the the extra meatball. Um, they're not good bets. Sometimes you don't have a choice, but uh, I mean, I think people know in general, especially with pitchers, stay away from pitchers on on really bad teams. Are there ever though some opportunities? I, I I'm thinking of Felix Hernandez, who for many years toiled in uh, relative futility in Seattle because they were historically bad for a couple of years there, and yet he was still not a bad guy to have on a on a fantasy roster. Are there opportunities like that on these really bad teams? 
Well, as long as the team is not that bad. Um, in Felix's case, you always had the he always had a nice home park going for him. But at the same time, I think that for in those years, he was going too high. I mean, he would often be the you know the second or third or fourth pitcher taken. That's true. And although you know no one would deny that he's a really good pitcher, um, he probably didn't pay off at that level. Um, but it, and the Marlins, of course, play in a great pitcher's park. If you if you're desperate for some starts and you only use the guys at home, you could use somebody like that on a temporary basis. But I would not expect anything from him over the long haul because ballpark notwithstanding, the the infielders are still going to miss some plays. They're still going to allow runs. The bullpen stinks. They're going to allow runs that they really shouldn't. So, you know, temporary basis, okay, if you have to. Um, anything more permanent, I would stay as far away as I possibly could. How about on the offensive side, though? Uh, I'm thinking of a guy like Alex Rios is having actually a pretty good year for uh, the difficult situation that he's in. Uh, would you let the fact that he's a White Sox player and and in the middle of that anemic roster color your opinion about whether you wanted to get him in a trade or accept him in a trade offer i don't think the whites i think the white Sox are overachieving a little bit uh, but they've had some bad luck too i don't think they're a really bad team i think they're probably you know a 70 75 win team and that's okay um furthermore in their case the weather has warmed up and it's a much better hitters park in the summertime so i would be I'd be happy to take Alex Rios with the right deal, or any White Sox hitter, except maybe Adam Dunn. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. And Gene, a few minutes ago I was talking with Todd Zola about trading, and we're getting to that part of the season where owners are starting to entertain trade offers, to make trade offers of their own. How big a trader are you in leagues where trading is allowed? Probably a little less than average, but I'm not opposed to it in principle. Um, but I just don't. I'll make a trade offer. I always listen to trade offers, but it's not um, usually a big part of what I'm trying to do. When you decide you do want to make a deal, or when you get approached to make a deal that appears to have some interest to you, how do you go about the negotiations? I'm really busy, so I don't like to negotiate. Um, when I make a trade offer, I make an offer that I consider to be a final offer or, you know, or an offer that this is what I want to do. Um, if somebody comes back to me, obviously I listen to it, but I don't like to go back and forth and waste time. Um, I don't like it when people uh, make ridiculous trade offers to me. Um, and I tell, and I'll tell them so uh, right at the start, because I'm not, I'm not interested in the, you know, the mark going to market and bargaining type of thing. This is what I want. This is what you have. Can we make a deal? And, you know, for me, that pretty much works. I think people like that. I think people are all really busy these days, and they don't like people wasting their time. And here, this is a good. I think this is a good offer. This is going to help me, and I think I can help you. So do you want to do it? Yes or no? And it generally works pretty well for me. Is there any difference in your approach, or do you think there should be a difference in a trader's approach when you're the offerer versus the offeree? Good question. Um I don't, I don't really know the answer to it because, as I say, I'm, I, I'm direct with what I do. And I, when I make an offer, I'm direct. And when I respond to an offer, I'm direct. And, and so, really, there is no difference in my approach to that. I, I, no, I don't think so. How about a situation where somebody comes to you and indicates an interest? 
in acquiring a player from you that you wouldn't mind trading away for the right kind of help, would would you counter by saying, I don't want the guy you're offering, but I do the deal um, for player B? Or is it, uh, and, and leave it at that, or does it just stop for you? Well, if there are options, if there are players who I consider very comparable, then yeah, I'll throw that as a possibility because perceptions are different. And, you know, a guy who I consider to be equal, he may consider to be better or worse. Um, so, but if, yeah, I will counter with what about this guy instead if I think that it's um, reasonable to do so. And I, and I don't insult, I don't like to insult other owners either. Or, although sometimes you're surprised by what people don't consider insulting and what they do consider insulting. But at least in my mind, I don't want to insult anybody and I don't want to be insulted in return. I'm wondering about the idea of being insulted. There are sometimes you'll get an offer from somebody in your league who who says, "I'll give you a Jacoby Ellsbury or I'll give you a Juan Pierre, somebody like that, a, a one-dimensional type of player." I know Ellsbury not so much, but a bad guy, we'll just say. And you look at your own situation in the standings, and you say, "I couldn't possibly use a bad guy. It's a pointless offer to make to me, given my circumstance." which seems to indicate to me this guy hasn't done his homework about what I need. And I don't know, I don't know if insulting is the right word, but do you, do, do you think negatively of a guy who has balanced the names in the trade but hasn't bothered to think about the situations? What if you don't need Ellsbury or Pierre? You know, what if, what if you're so far back in bags or so far ahead in bags that, that a speed guy is useless to you? I would say that. I, I would just say I have no real need for speed, um, if, for instance, if, but if you want to give me some power or if you want to give me some pitching or if you want to give me some saves, then we can talk. Um, yeah, just come right out and say it. Say, you know, don't mess around. Don't be coy. Just call it as you see it. I agree with you, and I, I find oftentimes that, that there's a lot of guys who, when they start sitting down to make a trade, they seem to enjoy the uh, the dance of the seven veils that <laughs> seems to accompany every trade negotiation, you know, where they're constantly putting guys on the table and taking them off. And, oi, you just want to say, look, make me an offer. I'll say yes, I'll say no. I'll maybe make one counter, but other than that, please just get down to business. Yeah, right. It's not Casablanca, you know, for special friends of Rick, I offer you one, Pierre. You know, I, I, I don't like it, and I kind of I try to make it clear from the start in negotiations that that this is not the way I want to do it. Um, I, I think you can do that politely, uh, and and you should certainly start out doing it politely. If they get insistent, well, I can be insistent too. Politeness definitely the way to go. There's no reason to create an enemy. You never know; it could come in handy down the road to be on good terms with the guy. Uh, listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with. Gene McCaffrey from Wise Guy Baseball. Gene, uh, let's talk about the players. Uh, give me a couple of, of guys who have really surprised you so far this year, whether for good or for bad. Oh, of course, there's a lot of them. Uh, I'll start with um, a couple of pitchers. Uh, Francisco Liriano has really surprised me. Um, I know the, the Pirates have a good defense, and he's walking three and a half per nine, which he can get away with where some pitchers couldn't. I still don't think he's what he what he once was, um, but I'm surprised that he's been as good as he has been. And as long as he, his control doesn't get any worse, I think he's going to continue to be a good pitcher, if not quite as good as he's been. Another guy who's even more surprising to me is Irvin Santana. Um, but his improvement is all about way better control, and as long as he does that, I think that he's going to be, again, 
substantially as good as he's been is and that to me is a real shock because to me he was just a perennial stiff and any time he you know threw a couple of good games together you could you would know that three bombings were coming immediately afterwards i don't think it's really true anymore um i'm a little surprised at just how great yadi or molina has been um you know, for years he played like an all-star. The last few years he's playing like a Hall of Famer, one of the best catchers has ever lived. Um, and I'm, I'm a little surprised. I mean, nobody is a real 360 hitter, but I don't think anybody should be surprised at all if he winds up this year at 330 with moderate power. I mean, that said, he's still not a fantastic rotisserie player because his, he'll never score a lot of runs and his, his RBIs will be respectable, but... Uh, um, so maybe, you know, next year he'll still be overvalued. Uh, but for the rest of this year, he's a great player. And, and Pearson has said he belongs in the MVP discussions. Absolutely right. Uh, yes. He's a great player. Um, I'm surprised on the negative side, I'm, I'm surprised that Elvis Andrews hasn't done better than he has. He's yeah. hitting in the 230s. I mean, this is a guy who 80% of the balls that he puts in play are ground balls or line drives. He's fast. Um, he's in a good hitter's park. Um, there's no reason why he should be hitting in the 230s, and that's been a big surprise to me. Um, great by low candidate, in my opinion. Um, I'm surprised at Carlos Gomez that he's um, that he's kept it up. I expect him to tail off, but but then again, um, he's up there in the extra base hits leaders. That's a good indicator for me that um, that he's, if not a, a great player, a good player. Um, I'm a little surprised at the extent of Manny Machado. Um, I, w- I wanted to mention this because a very simple indicator for me um, for batting average potential is doubles. Um, if you hit a lot of doubles, it's very hard not to hit for a good batting average. Um, this guy's got 33 doubles, and we're not even halfway done yet. Um, we knew he was good, uh, but I didn't think he was going to be this good this fast. And I think for the most part, he's going to keep it up, too. I think he's going to wind up the season hitting, say, 315. Um, not a great number of power, not a great amount of home runs, but I think in the uh, those doubles will turn into home runs, or a substantial number of them will, um, probably partly in this year and certainly in the next year or two after that. Last guy is uh, Chris Davis, who we talked about the first time, and he said that... Um, He's going the other way. His, his strikeouts are down, and they're not fantastic, but they're a lot better than they were. Um, I think he's going to have a slump, but his owners now don't care. I mean, he's practically made their seasons for him already, and I don't think he's finished yet. Yeah, I think Chris Davis has the, has great potential to keep on doing what he's doing. Uh, everything about his approach seems better. His strikeout rates though still not great, are are improving constantly. He's drawing more walks. He looks real patient and confident at the plate. I think Chris Davis is for real. Uh, Gene, you, you mentioned a couple of guys that you thought you might be buy low or sell high candidates. Let's quickly uh, close off by whipping through a few buy lows and sell highs, uh, pitchers, hitters, and by league. Let's start with a buy low pitcher in the American League. Well, I don't think anybody's going to let you have Justin Verlander for a low price, but uh, maybe they will. Um, one of the things I want to say, there's, there's 41 pitchers who have ERAs under three and a half in the major leagues. Um, so a guy who's doing that, uh, a buy low guy who's not really by that low is Derek Holland. 
Um, he's pitched pretty well, but I think he's capable of having a really good run, and he's a guy that I would be targeting. If you want to go down to the, the true dregs, um, I would take a shot with your old whipping boy, Felix Dubron. You know, he's got a floor under him. He's striking out guys. The team is good. Um, he's got a chance to to be better than average. And in any case, I don't think he, I don't think he has real great disaster potential. He's a guy that I would be looking at to buy low. How about in the National League, a buy low National League pitcher? Uh, again, I don't think anybody's going to give you a Kane or Hamels. But if your strikeouts are okay, I'd take a shot with Tim Hudson. Um, he's going to get you wins, and better decimals are coming. This guy really hasn't lost very much. Um, he's been a bad luck pitcher so far, and as I say, he's not going to give you strikeouts, so you have to be okay for that. But if you are, I, I would definitely target him. How about an American League hitter who might be a good buy low? Uh, again, I don't know how low you're going to be able to get Jose Bautista, um, but I think you uh, worth it if you could, if his owners are you know getting nervous. Billy Butler is a guy who I think that um, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just hitting about 270, which is 30 points under what he should be hitting. Um, he's not going to be a great home run hitter, but he gives you some power. He's in the middle of a you know not a great lineup, but they look to be improving. So he's a buy low candidate. The other guy I'm looking at is Ichiro. Um, I don't know that there's anybody who has a, a higher batting average floor than he does, and he's at it now. Uh, there were playing time issues early in the season, but with all the Yankee injuries, I think it's pretty sure that he is going to play. Um, so yeah, I take a shot at Ichiro. And on the National League side, a buy-low hitter? Let's try Jason Hayward. Uh, Again, I don't think that's a secret to your listeners, but this guy is much better than he's played, and it would be a real shock if he wasn't much better in the second half. Uh, Okay, let's turn to the sell highs now, Gene. Uh, How about an American League pitcher overperforming and uh, a good candidate to get uh, a nice haul in trade? Uh, I would Kuroda on the Yankees. Good pitcher, um, not as good as he's been. He's got a lot of value now. Sell him all you can. And how about a uh, sell-high pitcher in the National League? In the National League, there are a lot of them, I think. Uh, Mike Leake, um, Patrick Corbin, okay, guys, you've proved your point. You're pretty good, but you're not this good. Um, I would look to be selling Shelby Miller if I wasn't in a keeper league. Uh, Maybe want to wait a couple of weeks, get a little more out of him, but he's going to have an innings limit and – Again, he's just a little bit over his head. Uh, finally, um, Jorge De La Rosa on the on the Rockies. If, if you have him, God bless you. You've been very lucky. Uh, but it's getting hot here, and bad things are going to happen. Turning to the hitters, how about uh, an American League hitter you think is uh, overproducing and is a good sell-high candidate? Johnny Peralta. Thanks, Johnny. I owned you last year uh, when you were hitting 220, not 320. Uh, but we know that he's not anywhere near that good a hitter, and he's coming down. The other guy I'm not quite as convinced about, but I, if I owned him, I'd be looking to sell, is Josh Donaldson. Again, a good hitter. He's got a lot of things going against him in his home park, and he's been, you know, whether he's a real 300 hitter, I seriously doubt, and I think he's a lot more likely to hit 250 from now on. Not useless, but I think we've seen his best. And in the National League, a sell-high hitter. Uh, start with Carlos Beltran, who I also own, unfortunately. Um, well, fortunately so far, but we know he's injury-prone, a little streaky, and we've seen his best. The other guy is Hunter Pence, 
who I think uh, probably the listeners know is pretty clearly over his head. Um, very nice that he's gotten those dozen or so stolen bases, uh, but this guy is capable of, of the deep slump. He's had him before, and I'm pretty sure that another one is coming. Gene, uh, as we wrap up this segment, to remind our listeners how they can keep up with you. Uh, well, it's wiseguybaseball.com. Um, sometimes I post stuff on Facebook. Um, I haven't been that into Twittering. Um, I like to post comments on the HQ site, too. I'm known as McCaffrey. That's a very clever uh, nom de plume. <laughs> yeah, I got it from uh, McCaffrey. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no secret code there for the government to intercept and That's figure right. out. NSA, take note. <laughs> All right, Gene, thanks for doing this. We'll catch up with you again at least once more during the year. Thanks a lot, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to be here. Gene McCaffrey is the author of the excellent Wise Guy Baseball Annual, and he posts on his own blog, and as you just heard, he posts regularly at BaseballHQ.com's forums. Our regular commentaries are next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable! A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third-place coach, uh, Joe Malfitano, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it to four and I am stunned Bill I have seen a lot of dramatic finishes and a lot of sports but this one might top almost every other one Baseball HQ Radio And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio I'm Patrick Davitt Time now for our regular weekly commentaries We have Ryan Bloomfield on deck with HQ Matchups and BaseballHQ.com co-GM and speculator columnist Ray Murphy in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Rangers third base prospect Joey Gallo. The Texas Rangers' Joey Gallo continues to be one of the more interesting players in the minors. The six foot five, 210-pound third baseman might have the best raw power of any prospect in the game. Gallo hit 22 home runs last year in his pro debut and already has 22 home runs this year. Gallo now has 44 home runs and just 460 professional at-bats. On the year, Gallo is hitting 252 with a 341 on on-base percentage and a 591 slugging percentage and has 16 doubles to go along with those 22 home runs. While Gallo's power is undeniable, he does struggle to make consistent contact and has already struck out 108 times in 254 at-bats. Gallo has a quick bat and will hit the ball to all fields, but he really struggles to identify and hit breaking balls and will need to improve in order to succeed in the majors. Defensively, Gallo has good hands with a strong arm, but lacks range and first-step quickness needed to stick at third base long term. For fantasy purposes, Gallo is worth taking a flyer on. If he can figure out how to hit breaking balls and be more selective, he has the raw power and bat speed to hit 40 home runs once he reaches the majors. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. You don't suppose they call him Crazy Joe anywhere, do you? 
Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports this week looked at Mets right-hander Zach Wheeler, Houston slugger Mark Krause, Tampa outfield prospect Will Myers, and more. And don't forget our minor league watch list highlighting some less heralded prospects who might have a path to the majors, such as Chicago Cubs infielder Logan Watkins, Toronto outfielder Kevin Piller, Cleveland right-hander Danny Salazar, Dodger right-hander Jose Dominguez, and more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's HQ matchups, looking at individual pitcher skills for the games of the coming week and how certain pitchers match up against their opposing lineups. The scale runs from 5, which is a must-start, to minus 5, which is a must-sit. With the Skinny on Games coming up, here's Ryan Bloomfield looking at Irvin Santana against Atlanta and Trevor Cahill taking on the Nationals. Irvin Santana gets a 2.14 matchup rating from BaseballHQ.com starting pitching report against the Braves on Tuesday. It's a well-earned score given his success this year. His 2.64 ERA this season is unsustainable, though, as it's been helped by some lucky hit and strand rates. But his skills indicate it's reasonable to expect an ERA in the low to mid threes moving forward. Santana's been tremendously consistent this year with BPVs over 100 in every month so far. So expect continued success from him in this matchup. Jeff Samarja continues to impress as he's actually improved his numbers and skills from last year's breakout season. Samarja has a 3.16 ERA over the last month, fully supported by a 3.06 expected ERA over that time. He's striking out over a batter per inning this year with a solid 48% ground ball rate. 80% of his starts this season have been dominant according to BaseballHQ.com's pure quality start metric, while none of them have been disasters. Samarja's high level of skill, consistency, and a 2.85 matchup rating point towards a pretty strong outing Sunday against Houston. Trevor Cahill is a risky start against Washington on Tuesday, and not just because he left his last start after an inning with a hip injury. Cahill's strikeout rate, currently at 6.3, is down from last year, and he's continued to have some problems with his control. He'll always be an extreme ground ball pitcher due to his pitch movement, but he'll need to improve some of these other skills in order for him to take the next step. Cahill hasn't gone six innings in any of his starts in June with an 8.8 ERA this month to show for it. Consider benching Cahill for this one, especially given the injury risk from his last outing. And finally, Esmeal Rogers makes his fifth start of the season on Monday against Tampa Bay with a negative .59 matchup rating. Rodgers has fared decently so far as a starter, but there's a big gap between his 3.14 ERA and 4.16 expected ERA, indicating regression may be coming soon. Rodgers' 5.5 DOM is way down from the 9.5 number he posted last year. He'll face a Rays team averaging over 5 runs a game since May 1st. Rodgers probably is just best for deep leagues only here. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with Baseball HQ.
Attention Daily Streaming League and Salary Cap Gamers. Ryan Bloomfield and Brian Brickley do comprehensive starting pitcher matchup reports every day at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com co-GM and speculator columnist Ray Murphy talking this week about June is call-up month, but for how long? Zach Wheeler, Will Myers, Mike Zanino, Garrett Cole, Yasiel Puig. We are seeing another bumper crop of prospects called up this June, and the month isn't even over yet. We can cheat and add in Michael Waka and Nick Franklin if we go back to the last week of May. Last year, in the same time frame, prominent call-ups included Yasmani Grandel, Andrelton Simmons, Julio Tehran, Leonis Martin, Trevor Bauer, and Derek Norris. A year later, that 2012 class is still a mixed bag, to be sure. But that's not really news. Some prospects hit the ground running when they get to MLB. Others struggle for a while. So it always has been, so it ever will be. Still, it's fun to see how much new talent is injected into the majors in this compressed time period. Next to the trade deadline, it's one of the season's most significant periods for player movement and role changes. Going forward, though, there are some reasons to think that the compressed nature of these arrivals in late May and early June is going to change. There are four reasons for this. The first is the new collective bargaining agreement. The CBA signed before the 2012 season effectively moved the Super 2 arbitration date further into the season by expanding the pool of Super 2 eligible players from 17% to 22% of the 2-plus year service time pool. The net effect is, is later debuts for prospects whose teams are gaming that system. For instance, look at some of these debut dates for elite prospects in recent years. Ryan Braun, May 25, 2007. Clayton Kershaw, May 25, 2008. Matt Leaders, May 29, 2009. Steven Strasburg, June 8, 2010. Yasmani Grandel, June 2, 2012. So this week's debuts of Wheeler and Myers continue the trend line of these call-ups sliding deeper into June. As long as there's a system in place, there will be teams trying to game that system. And for fantasy players, that's a reduction in value by a couple of weeks' worth of productivity for players being held back by those Super 2 considerations. But not all prospects are being held back, and there are reasons for that, too. Our second factor is the second wildcard spot. If teams get off to even just a decent start, they begin to think in terms of playoff possibilities and acting like a contender, even if they aren't that legitimate. For an example this year, look at Nolan Arenado in Colorado. The Rockies started hot, and if they had previously been thinking of waiting longer on Arenado, they made a win-now decision to go to Arenado and risk the Super 2 problem after the 2015 season. The second wildcard spot might not encourage teams to promote their prospects right from opening day, but we can expect to see some more cases like Arenado's, where teams get a glimmer of hope early and react with an aggressive move. Our third factor is the new draft rules. One of the benefits of the new rules surrounding the amateur draft is that the negotiating window has been reduced. Now, the earlier deadline plus the firmer budget limits are combining to get guys signed more quickly, which allows them to play in the minors in the summer of their draft. Our fourth reason is injuries. MLB injuries have been rising in recent years, and that trend has continued into 2013. Early returns point to a record pace of DL usage. Injury-created opportunities will occasionally trigger a club to call up a top prospect just because of a pressing need at the big league level. That's precisely what got Puig and Zanino to the majors earlier this month. With no evidence that injuries have peaked, it's reasonable to expect more injury-provoked promotions in the coming seasons. What does all this mean? 
First of all, these changes seem to be for the better. The net effect should be that with more players getting called up based on when they're ready or when their team needs them, rather than reasons related to service time. The arrivals in the majors may spread out more evenly across the calendar rather than clustering into early June the way they have in recent years. And of course, there will still be the leap of faith involving figuring out which prospects are going to hit the ground running. Put all of these things together, and the bottom line in terms of managing your fab remains spend early and spend often. There will always be someone else to spend on in coming weeks, but getting your hands on new talent early and getting more of that talent will give you the best chance to unearth a different a difference maker. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy. BaseballHQ.com co-GM and speculator columnist Ray Murphy is a member of the Masternotes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 23 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Fantasy Baseball's wise guy, Gene McCaffrey. Gene's always great fun to talk to, but I forgot to get a music recommendation this week. What was I thinking? I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, our League Watch News Analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, Todd Zola was by to talk about trades. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. Our HQ matchups commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our Master Notes commentator this week was BaseballHQ.com co-GM and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com now and in the coming days for these features. Christopher Olson has a rotisserie gaming column that looks at using trade talks as intel about what your opponents are up to. Dr. HQ Rick Wilton continues his series on baseball injuries, looking at knee cartilage injuries. And Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column, available for free this week, invites you to join a July monthly league. Plus, we'll have all our regular features on playing time, buyer's guides, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My research piece at BaseballHQ.com this week looks at general managers' draft records and I'll have a piece coming in the next week, whether good teams get more save opportunities. And of course, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. And please feel free to join the literally more than 100 followers on my own Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to that 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Peter Kreutzer of AskRotoman.com on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>